Hello, welcome to Deepak Casts, a podcast series from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. My name is Ted Barron. I'm the executive director here at the DeBartolo Center. For this series, Indie Film, we're taking a closer look at some of the major works of independent cinema, specifically American independent cinema. And this week, we move historically uh, to the new millennium. Uh, this is our first film post, uh, you know, uh, from the 21st century, to be, to be more precise. Uh, we're looking at Andrew Brzezalski's 2002 film, Funny Haha. Um, Andrew Brzezalski is sometimes called the godfather of the mumblecore movement. Um, and there's a question about, you know, what the mumblecore movement really means, if anything. Uh, the term itself was credited to a sound recordist uh, named Eric uh, Masuniga, who actually worked with Brzezalski on several films. Um, they were attending the South by Southwest Film Festival in 2005 and out having drinks one night. And he supposedly uh, coined this term as kind of a throwaway when uh, there was discussions about uh, a similar kind of trend in independent films between films by Andrew Bujalski as well as uh, films that were premiering at the festival by the Duplass brothers and Joe Swamberg. Um, the similarities, if we start to see this as a movement in Andrew Brzezalski and most of the other filmmakers are reluctant to call it a movement. Again, the, the term itself was kind of just sort of tossed off without any uh, real significance, is that we're looking at a, a collection of films where uh, the plotting is very minimal and often very naturalistic, something we've seen in earlier examples of indie film. Uh, but often with dialogue that's very, uh, very much representative of the characters kind of speaking as themselves. So I guess if I'm, uh, I, I guess I have permission for this podcast to be a bit more inarticulate um, than usual because it's it's fitting with the style of the mumblecore films. Uh, lots of awkward pauses uh, when people are uh, speaking together and having conversations. These are films about hanging out, something, again, we've seen in a lot of other examples of indie film where we go to a place, we meet some characters. Not a lot happens, but we just we just kind of spend some time with, with people who may or may not be interesting, depending on your, uh, your inclinations. Um, the characters are very much 20-somethings uh, coming of age in places uh, not typically represented in the, in the indie scene. So we've seen a lot of examples of indie films coming out of New York or, or Los Angeles. Um, these are films and, and filmmakers who are based in places like Boston, Chicago, um, Austin, Texas. Um, Austin's particularly notable because the South by Southwest Film Festival ultimately becomes kind of the key platform functioning in many ways uh, as uh, the way that Sundance did for a lot of the um, indie movement of the uh, 1990s um, where Sundance had really become the place where uh, many of the, the major works of indie cinema or the more notable works of indie cinema um, were uh, broken into a wider audience. Uh, South by Southwest, which is a festival that has its roots as a music festival, um, as it expanded into film programming as a, as a component of the festival, um, became known for uh, being featuring uh, work in this in this vein. Um, a lot of the films that come out of the movement are made collaboratively, um, so it's often directors working really closely with actors, kind of pulling together um, 
you know, scenes in, uh, in, in somewhat of an improvisational approach, but um, usually with some structures in place. Uh, Andrew Bajalski, who directed Funny Haha, uh, did not typically use this approach. His films were, were more um, uh, were typically well scripted, scripted well in advance of the production process. And while there might be some openness to um, kind of experimenting while filming, uh, typically the the uh, characters and the um, and dialogue were pretty well set in advance. Um, the other thing to note about the mumblecore movement and why it sort of exists in the way that it does is that it's a period in terms of film history where we see major rapid advances in digital technology. The, the, the early to mid-2000s are when we're seeing this kind of this significant transition from analog film into, into digital video. Um, we're starting to see more films being shot on digital video, um, and it's, it's a period – it's really a period of transition. Now, that's happening on a grander scale with, within the Hollywood studio system in part because the digital technologies are reaching a point of advancement where uh, the image quality that's being created by digital video is, is now comparable to 35-millimeter film, which was always its disadvantage. Um, but it also, on a smaller scale, digital video is making it more possible uh, for filmmakers to essentially uh, take more of a DIY approach and use a DIY aesthetic. So that sort of older model of, of digital video that, um, that may have a kind of rougher uh, visual quality to it, those kinds of films would typically um, be represented and embraced within uh, this movement of, of mumblecore. Uh, where we're seeing filmmakers who, you know, aren't so concerned about um, uh, a, a sort of a pristine kind of composition in the way that um, in the way that other movements might have, but also um, kind of taking uh, using resources that are much more accessible. It's 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 a, you know to shoot film on, to shoot a film on video is a much uh, uh, less expensive undertaking, uh, which lends itself to um, kind of an ultra-low budget process. A lot of the films uh, or some of the notable films that would end up uh, at South by Southwest were films that had budgets of less than $10,000, some, you know, some in the three dollars to $5,000 range. Um, again, not the case with, uh, with Funny Haha uh, because this was a film that was uh, where Bujolski uh, chose to shoot on 16 millimeter, which has its own um, kind of... Uh, Low budget characteristics to it. Uh, it's much. It's 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 certainly much cheaper to shoot a film on sixteen millimeter versus thirty five millimeter. Um, but still, the processing charges associated with uh, with sixteen millimeter and and having the film and actually having the film available in thirty five millimeter format in theaters um, uh, involves a, a, a deeper investment. Um, the other piece of this technological advancement is not just in terms of the production of the films, but also in terms of the content. A lot of the films deal with, um, isolation that's kind of created by new technologies. Um, this is kind of the early days of, of, of social media. In fact, um, uh, uh, MySpace became a, a, an effective platform for uh, some of the filmmakers to actually promote their work and, and build a following. Uh, but we're still kind of in the early days of Facebook before it becomes 
this, you know, uh, this massive cultural tool um, that gets used much more widely. So we don't quite have that level of social media um, uh, engagement. Um, really using social media more as a, a way to, to build a kind of niche audience around um, around the films. And, and also notable that it's, it's before – that we're at a point where it's uh, before the introduction of the iPhone, which will have a big impact on uh, a next uh, period of, of independent film production, which we'll get to in a future episode. Um, a lot of the films, because of these kind of more small-scale uh, productions and um, uh, uh, low-budget productions, these were films that could be self-distributed. So the filmmakers, again, kind of working um, uh, often within kind of smaller communities could get films seen um, in very limited fashion. I mean, they're films that uh, that weren't distributed widely uh, but in part because of the fact that it was usually the filmmakers themselves that were doing the distribution and, and provides a model for a kind of micro cinema which, uh, which becomes quite prominent uh, throughout uh, the early part of the 21st century. So um, Funny Haha is a film that centers on Marnie, um, who's played by Kate Dollenmayer, um, in a really great performance. Um, she's, a, she's a recent college grad. She's trying to find her place in, in the world. Um, we see her pursuing uh, a romantic interest uh, uh, with a guy named Alex who's actually in a relationship with another woman. Um, and rather than play up the sort of uh, melodramatic aspects of the kind of romantic relationships, which are very much at the center of the film, um, it's a film that's, that's uh, kind of putting us in a place of uh, – that, that's much more um, – low key in terms of the experience. We, we see Marnie wandering around uh, the city. In this case, it's a film that was um, shot in uh, the Boston area and not in necessarily in a Boston that, that one would see in, you know, more prominent Hollywood films. So you don't necessarily see landmarks of the city or, or more familiar locations. These are really in the kind of uh, low-rent uh, residential neighborhoods of the city, uh, places like Alston and Jamaica Plain, um, which are no longer low-rent, but, uh, but at the time um, were places where if you were a young uh, college grad or even a college student, um, you could you know, kind of uh, f uh, find a place to live pretty reasonably. Um, and we definitely get a sense of these, uh, these uh, spaces being you know, kind of very lived in. Um, probably the apartments that the um, you know that the casting crew inhabited themselves, um, which uh, which really informs the production of it. Andrew Brzezowski also plays one of the uh, one of the men that she meets and goes on a date with, uh, and it's one of the great scenes in the film because uh, he really plays up the awkwardness of this character. Uh, if we talk about you know the sort of inarticulate qualities of some of these characters being some of the merits of uh, the performances. Uh, uh, Brzezowski knows how to play this really well. Um, so sh uh, shot in the Boston area, on, in, and as I mentioned, shot on 16-millimeter film, which again, which kind of gives the film a certain kind of um, indie aesthetic, um, a lot of shooting on location using natural lighting, so uh, a kind of a look to the cinema that that almost harkens back more to the sick to the films of the 1960s. Certainly uh, seems to draw heavy, a heavily influence from uh, filmmakers like Richard Linklater, 
uh, with films like Slacker, which is, you know, again, a more observational portrait of, of life in Austin in the early 1990s. Um, Bujalski himself uh, had studied at Harvard University. Uh, he's a 1998 graduate of Harvard. Uh, interestingly, worked with uh, filmmaker Chantal Ackerman, uh, who was in residence at Harvard, uh, and she was his thesis advisor. Uh, who, in her own work, you know, tended to, uh, depending on the war on, on the film that she was making, but she tended to do things kind of small scale. Um, Ackerman's recently been recognized. Uh, by the in the recent sight and sound poll uh, for her film uh, Jean Dielman, which was picked as as the greatest film of all time uh, by uh, critics and and uh, filmmakers. Um, but when uh, the the Harvard pedigree is notable not for its prestige as much as it is uh, for the the community that we see within the film. A lot of the other actors and crew members are people that um, were in. Uh, Bujalski's cohort at Harvard. Um, so we see these are these are likely people who are kind of in the area, um, available for production. Not as not necessarily as as professional a crew um, or a cast. Um, you know the the actors that you'll see within the film. Uh, you know many of whom did not go on to other kind of notable roles. But people who you know had in, in some ways have have other creative careers. Kate Dallemeyer, who plays. Um, who plays Marnie in the film? She went on to a career. Uh, she she went on to study film as a graduate student, and then uh, worked uh, currently works as a film archivist. Um, you have musicians uh, from uh, local musicians uh, from the local kind of indie rock scene who are kind of in and out of the film. Um, so there's a real sense of of place uh, that these characters occupy uh, from the time of the film's initial completion in, in 2002. Now here's where I'm going to get a little personal because um, this is a film that I remember very well because uh, at around the time the film was completed, I was working as a programmer at the Harvard Film Archive, so uh, which is the uh, film venue at Harvard University, and many of the people in the Harvard orbit, orbit were well aware of Bouchard. Work. Um, it wasn't particularly well known outside of that. Um, so we actually did. We hosted screenings of the film uh, dating back to 2003, where you know some local critics who were familiar with Bujalski uh, really praised uh, the film and, and gave it um, you know great recognition. But it really didn't go anywhere because it was a film that was being self-distributed. It didn't. It didn't get a lot of attention. It eventually, um, in 2005, gets a wider release uh, where it starts to uh, play in New York and um, becomes – it starts to get more kind of critical recognition. But there's also um, a strategy that um, was used by uh, – in terms of exhibition for the film where it was released in theaters simultaneous with both a broadcast on the Sundance channel, the, the Sundance television channel – and um, a VHS uh, release. So actually putting the film out on different platforms simultaneously to make it uh, more widely available. Um, and it was a strategy that paid off not so much in terms of box office. The film was, um, you know, generated less than $100,000 in terms of its box office, but certainly in terms of critical acclaim. A.O. Scott of the New York Times uh, named it as one of the 10 best films of the year, and that led to more opportunities uh, for Bujalski as, as people started to pay more attention to his work. Um, his follow-up film, Mutual Appreciation, which came out in 2006, comes out at a point when this mumblecore movement is really starting to gain some steam. Um, 
a, a modest steam, I, I have to qualify because again, these are none of these films were really released widely, but there was just a there was there was enough of a, 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 enough momentum around different filmmakers who were working in this vein that people started to pay attention. And these included, you know, some filmmakers who've actually gone on to um, uh, quite significant. Uh, work in terms of uh, studio projects and other areas. Probably the most notable are the Duplass brothers, Jay and Mark Duplass, um, who've each kind of carved out niches for themselves as actors uh, within uh, within Hollywood. Um, their uh, feature, The Puffy Chair, uh, which came out in two thousand. Uh, in 2005 was considered one of the, the bigger successes of, of the movement. And I think it made something like $200,000 at the box office. Again, pretty modest uh, based on, uh, you know, compared to some of the other uh, examples of indie film that we've considered. Um, Joe Swanberg, um, who uh, directed um, Hannah Takes the Stairs, um, is another uh, filmmaker who gets recognition, as well as, a, as well as many other films. Swanberg was actually probably the most prolific of any of the directors associated with that movement. Um, but Hannah Takes the Stairs is noteworthy because it's kind of an all-star uh, project, uh, or at least all-star within the realm of, of Mumblecore. It was co-written uh, by Greta Gerwig and uh, Kent Osborne, both of whom appear in the film. Uh, Mark Duplass also also. Uh, acts in the film. Uh, Andrew Brzezalski also acts in the film. So it's an interesting kind of convergence of all of these uh, people who were, you know, definitely in conversation with each other. Um, some other filmmakers, Aaron Katz, who directed Quiet City, uh, Rai Russo Young, who also appears in Hannah Takes the Stairs, um, are all kind of uh, affiliated with this movement. And of course, Greta Gerwig is uh, one of the more recognizable figures that comes out of this scene. Uh, both as an actress, as a writer, um, and as a director, um, as we've seen her career um, really um, explode over the last uh, over the last decade. Um, some other filmmakers who are kind of associated with this movement would be people like Lena Dunham, whose film Tiny Furniture, definitely, uh, who's one of her, which is one of her first feature films before she goes on to make the HBO series Girls, um, is a film that that very much kind of works in this. Uh, in this vein. Um, Lynn Shelton, um, who sadly passed away a few years ago, um, had been working primarily as an editor uh, within uh, you know, within more of the indie world, but then starts to direct uh, her films. And she's, a, she's slightly older than a lot of these other directors and um, uh, but but goes on to a fairly a fairly notable career in terms of both uh, independent film, but also uh, works as a television director, directs episodes of Mad Men and other and other series. Um, and then you have uh, a sort of a darker turn, uh, or, or films that kind of embrace um, some some not so much kind of the hanging out with cool young hip people. But uh, maybe some some darker elements in in films by directors like Ronnie Bronstein. Um, if you look at his film Frownland, which came out in 2007, a very different portrait uh, of what it's like to be kind of a young 20-something, you know, making your way in the world. Ronnie Bronstein notably goes on to collaborate with the Safdie brothers. Who were probably who were definitely younger than a lot of the other filmmakers. The Safties were college students 
uh, in the mid-2000s while a lot of these films were being released. But also incredibly prolific as students. They were making short films for a long time before they start to make their own feature films. And of course, uh, they've gone on to uh, a really successful partnership with each other and with Ronnie Bronstein, who's, who's worked as a, uh, a writer with them as well as an editor. Um, so, so part of the reason why we see kind of a shift uh, with this uh, with this particular movement is um, the exhibition formats really starting to, to change. I mentioned, you know, Funny Haha and its simultaneous uh, release process. Uh, the Puffy Chair was actually one of the first films to be released, which was the Duplass Brothers film. Uh, it's one of the first films that was released by Netflix, but at a state at a period when Netflix was still primarily just a DVD uh, delivery service. Uh, they they partnered um, with another company on a theatrical uh, release strategy, which which ultimately worked for the film. But again, really kind of limiting the film to larger cities and not and not necessarily a wide release. Um, and another film which is probably less recognized is the film Four Eyed Monsters. Uh, which had its premiere on YouTube when YouTube was still in its early days. YouTube is established in 2005. Um, Four-Eyed Monsters comes out in 2007. So the idea of actually releasing a film on a streaming uh, platform um, is a new concept in the in the late 2000s, and uh, they were. Uh, this was one of the first films that um, that experimented with that technique. So, if you know the legacy of of the mumblecore movement is perhaps you know not only being this incredibly um, rich. Uh, a moment of development for a particular group of filmmakers, uh, but also for the ways in which it, it kind of reconceived uh, modes of production, which become more standard, of course, with digital video becoming the standard format um, within the film industry. Um, uh, that's, you know, that's, that really kind of predicts some of the changes that are, that are just about to happen on a, on a wider basis, but also kind of rethinking some of the ways in which um, exhibition formats are changing. Uh, Andrew Brzezalski himself, um, he's gone on to a really interesting career as a director. Uh, I mentioned Mutual Appreciation, which was his follow-up film that came out in 2006. He kind of stays in an indie vein for, for several years with films like Beeswax and Computer Chess. Uh, more recently, uh, he made the film Support the Girls, uh, which features uh, Haley Lou Rich uh, Richardson and Regina Hall in a, in a performance that was uh, actually touted as, as a possible Oscar nominee. Um, but a really interesting turn that he made more recently was to write the screenplay for the live-action adaptation of, of Lady and the Tramp. Um, and it's kind of a testament to, to his work in that a director who's known for kind of chronicling the lives of these uh, – or historically, you know, uh, uh, creating films in which he chronicles the lives of 20-somethings who are not perhaps the most articulate characters is now being tapped by Disney to, uh, you know, to, to work on a screenplay about two of its most beloved characters. But, um, but he's definitely one to continue to keep an eye on as he's continued to work – um, in in an indie vein, but on a on a lar on a slightly larger scale um, than than what he had been doing uh, in the early days of of this movement uh, of the mumblecore movement, which he was of course reluctant to even call a movement. So uh, it's a great uh, it's a great period to go back to now, and it's weird to even think of it as a period. Uh, because, you know, again, as I mentioned, we, uh, I, I was able to screen Buzhalski's work as it was being discovered. Uh, several of the other films and filmmakers um, 
uh, were pro, uh, I was able to program at Harvard when I was uh, working as a film programmer there. And it was always great to kind of discover this new energy and also just seeing the, the connections that form between uh, the filmmakers um, who, you know, who really seem to, to connect uh, nicely with one each other. So uh, that's, uh, that's kind of it for this episode. Um, so, yeah, if I'm being inarticulate, I'll just sort of mumble my way out of this. And uh, hopefully uh, it's not enough to turn you off, but we'll uh, invite you to come back for our next episode.